Once again, to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, just like our new friends in the country of Uzbekistan have done. You know you're doing something right when you can get the Uzbeks to listen. Age-old saying. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. Right off the top, I want to take a quick second to talk about The Undertaker. So back here in the present day, WrestleMania 33 just concluded a few weeks ago, and The Undertaker has seemingly retired after almost 27 years in the WWE. I won't go too in-depth on that since so many people have already discussed his retirement at length, but I will just say that one of the real treats of this podcast so far has been going back and revisiting Taker's career. In the Attitude Era, an undead zombie character could certainly be one that the fans would completely turn on, given the fact the storylines have shifted toward more reality-based content and further away from cartoony gimmicks. However, as we'll see throughout the timeline of this podcast, not only does The Undertaker continue to be one of the most popular fixtures of the Attitude Era, but he actually goes through several incarnations of his character by the time the era concludes in 2001. Additionally, it's a nice bit of coincidence that The Undertaker retired right as we're covering the summer of 1998 on this podcast, since we know that Taker will soon be facing Stone Cold Steve Austin in the main event of SummerSlam, which, spoiler alert, ends up getting the most pay-per-view buys of any SummerSlam in company history. To say that the fans are still invested in him at this point would be an understatement. So The Undertaker may be retired in 2017, but back in 1998, he's still going strong, and I hope you'll continue to enjoy seeing his journey as we progress throughout the Attitude Era. And so, with that being said, let's dive into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, August 3rd, 1998, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from the San Diego Sports Arena in San Diego, California. Some other noteworthy events which have occurred in this building include One Night Stand 2008 and Vengeance 2001, a.k.a. the pay-per-view, where Chris Jericho becomes the first-ever undisputed champion. Fun fact, if you listened to the previous Sunday Night Heat episode of this podcast, you will likely recall that I referenced Triple H appearing on the USA Network show Pacific Blue. Well, throughout this episode of Raw on the WWE Network, they edit out many mentions of the fact that that particular episode of the show will be airing this Sunday. So once again, I encourage you to Google the phrase Triple H Pacific Blue and watch a clip of it because he fucking suplexes a female bike cop out of nowhere. It's awesome. So anyway, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs this week include, I got two words for you, swallow it. Will Eat Shit to Be on TV, and Val Venus Does Snuff Films. Not bad. However, on a related note, there was a much worse sign on the episode of Nitro which aired on this same night. 
When Bret Hart enters, the WCW cameraman zooms in on a fan holding a sign which says, Why does the hitman wear a pink triangle, complete with a downward-pointing pink triangle on the sign? These days, the upward-pointing triangle is used as a gay pride symbol, but during World War II, the downward-pointing triangle was used by the Nazis to label homosexuals in concentration camps. So I guess what I'm saying is, great job zooming in on that sign, WCW cameraman. Yikes. I think that one is probably on the worst wrestling signs of all time list, right up there with that infamous sign from the 1980s that said, Roddy Piper has AIDS. Yeesh. But anyway, as for Raw, we open with the Nation of Domination walking to the ring. Well, four out of five of them anyway. WWF Intercontinental Champion The Rock, WWF European Champion D'Lo Brown, Owen Hart, and Mark Henry are here, but The Godfather is not. Last night on Sunday Night Heat, The Rock and Owen Hart defeated Kane and Mankind via countout to become the number one contenders for Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker's WWF Tag Team titles, a match which will happen tonight. In fact, The Rock grabs a mic and says he doesn't want to wait for that match to take place later. He wants Austin and Taker to come to the ring right now. Instead, however, we get a surprise appearance from Commissioner Slaughter, of all people, and he heads to the ring. The Rock says that if Slaughter is showing up instead, it means that Austin and Taker must be forfeiting, so he demands that Slaughter head backstage and go get their belts. However, this of course brings out Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker. Austin runs into the ring and immediately gets jumped by the Nation of Domination, but The Undertaker does not follow him because Kane shows up on the entrance ramp behind him. With Stone Cold getting pummeled by the Nation, Taker starts walking up the ramp toward his brother. Before he can get to him, though, Paul Bearer drags Kane backstage by his hair, so Mankind then shows up and jumps The Undertaker instead. Taker and Mankind then brawl backstage, while Austin continues trying to hold off The Rock and Owen. Eventually, Stone Cold manages to hit Owen with a stunner, and he then rolls out of the ring to grab a chair. This causes the rest of the nation to scatter, leaving Austin by himself in the ring. It appears that our tag team title match will have to wait until later, but we're certainly off to a rousing start. However, we are once again left to wonder if The Undertaker and Kane are in cahoots, since Taker conveniently left the ringside area to go after his brother right as Stone Cold was about to brawl with the nation. Although I'd say the bigger mystery is... What exactly was the point of Commissioner Slaughter being out there if he wasn't actually going to do anything? The world may never know. Next up, it's time for a Brawl for All fight, and... No, hold on one motherfucking minute here. If you're watching on the WWE Network, our next encounter is a Brawl for All fight, but if you actually watch this episode of Raw live at the time, we get a different segment which the WWE has completely edited out of this episode of Raw. Allow me to explain. Marvelous Mark Marrow and Jacqueline head to the ring, with Jackie carrying that large trophy she won for defeating Sable in the bikini contest at Fully Loaded. Marrow grabs a mic and calls out his opponent, Golga, but he gets quite the surprise when Sable's music plays and she accompanies Golga to the ring. Not only that, but Golga is now wearing a South Park t-shirt and carrying a box of cheesy poofs with him. The transformation of the oddities then continues even further as Sable introduces us to Kurgan and Giant Silva, who are now decked out in tuxedos. Kurgan then proceeds to poorly sing the theme song to the Miss America pageant, which brings out Luna Vachon, who is now wearing a dress and carrying a bouquet of flowers. I'm speculating that Kurgan singing this song is likely the reason why they had to edit this segment out from the network, since they probably don't have the rights to use it. 
In fact, since that's probably the case, I'll play about 30 seconds of it for you here, since the WWE clearly does not want you to hear it. Two seven-footers, seven-foot-plus for the Giants. Now keep in mind, the last time we saw the oddities on Raw, they were managed by the Jackal and booked as heels, and Kurgan in particular was still portrayed as being a maniacal, unstoppable monster. And now, for no apparent reason other than the fact that Sable gave them some attention, they're lovable goofs. Go figure. So Mero and Golga then proceed to have a terrible match, as Golga is only capable of the most basic moves at this point, and he fucks up several of them, including accidentally falling over after hitting Mero with a clothesline. The finish of the match came when Luna and Jacqueline started brawling outside of the ring, so referee Mike Kyoto went to the arena floor to get between them, instead of, you know, refereeing the match. That distraction allowed Giant Silva to hit Mero with a chokeslam, followed by Golga channeling his former earthquake gimmick by bouncing off the ropes, leaping, and sitting on Mero's head. And when I say he sat on Mero's head, that's not an exaggeration. He's supposed to land on Mero's chest, but he completely overshoots it and lands ass-first right in Mero's face, which had to really suck for a number of reasons. Now, as you recall, Golga entered to Sable's theme when he came to the ring, but after his victory, they play a different song for him, and that song is the one we typically associate with the oddities, The Greatest Show by the Insane Clown Posse, which I think actually worked pretty well with this particular faction. Golga, Kurgan, Giant Silva, Luna, and Sable then all pose together in the ring, and that will wrap it up for this band from the WWE Network segment. I almost want to say it's too bad they had to cut this from the network since it marks a complete turnaround for the oddities, but the match was pretty terrible, so I guess it's okay. However, I would say this also marks a huge turnaround for Sable as well, and not a very good one. Last week on Raw, she was confronting Vince McMahon, who's currently the top heel on the entire roster, and this week she's palling around with a group of jobbers. I don't know who she pissed off between these episodes, but she certainly appears to owe someone an apology. Next up, okay, now it actually is time for the Brawl for All fight between The Godfather and Scorpio. And in case you were wondering, yes, The Godfather does indeed come to the ring with three scantily clad women, even though this is not a standard wrestling match. But wait, you say, didn't The Godfather lose his previous Brawl for All matchup against Dan the Beast Severn? In fact, he did, but Jim Ross tells us that Severn has withdrawn from the Brawl for All tournament. We then cut to Severn backstage, who tells us that the reason why he withdrew is because, quote, A man of my stature, I have nothing to prove. When I have a score to settle, I will do it when my hands are not bound. So there you have it. Apparently, Dan Severn left the tournament because he doesn't like wearing boxing gloves. Good reasoning there. Before the fight can begin, the Godfather grabs a microphone, and for the very first time, he makes a rather interesting offer to his opponent. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. What I'm going to do here is you got your choice of going three rounds in this ring knowing that I'm going to whoop your ass. Hmm. Or, or you can take three of my finest hoes uh, and spend the night with them. Oh. The choice is up to you. Bingo! That's a, that's a 
Scorpio then starts playing to the crowd as if to say, should I fight him or take the hose? As it turns out, he decides to fight, which actually draws a sizable amount of boos from the fans. Pretty dumb move there, Scorpio. The fans enjoy scantily clad women, and they hate the brawl for all, so I think you just inadvertently turned yourself heel. Round one was mostly uneventful. Godfather definitely landed more punches than Scorpio, but none of them were enough to really do much damage. The WWF's unofficial scoring had Godfather ahead 5 to nothing after the first minute. Round two was pretty much dominated by the Godfather, including one particular flurry where he hit Scorpio with several hard body shots while he had him trapped in a corner. Godfather 10, Scorpio 0. At this point, JR informs us that Steve Blackman injured himself training for the Brawl for All, so, much like Dr. Death Steve Williams, he may also end up being a casualty of this brilliant idea. That's rather unfortunate, because I would have really liked to have seen a legitimate Bart Gunn Steve Blackman fight, and I think we are all worse off for having been deprived of that. But anyway, finally in round three, Scorpio seemingly remembered that takedowns are an option, so he went for one, but Godfather blocked it and then took him down himself. Five more points for the pimp. Scorpio then started throwing punches because he knew he had to knock out Godfather to win the fight, but he gave up pretty quickly. The remainder of the round consisted of both guys basically staring each other down and throwing the occasional punch, which once again resulted in the dreaded boring chant from the crowd. When the fight concluded, the Godfather was awarded the victory by judge's decision, and his prize is that he now gets to face Bart Gunn in the next round. Good luck with that. As for Scorpio, well, maybe next time he'll take the hose. After a commercial break, it's time for our next match, the New Age Outlaws versus Kane and Mankind in a rematch from three weeks ago on Raw where the Outlaws dropped the tag titles to them. Wisely, as Kane is doing his pre-match lighting the turnposts on fire routine, the Outlaws take the chance to gain an advantage by grabbing Foley's legs, dragging him out of the ring, and beating the crap out of him. This causes Jim Ross to get in one of his classic accidental dick jokes. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Out here in the cloak of darkness, the outlaws jerk mankind right off the apron. Yep, they sure did jerk him right off. At one point in the match, we get what Jim Ross claims is the first instance of the very impressive spot where two men attempt to suplex Kane together, but he blocks it and suplexes both men himself. Great showing of power there by the Big Red Machine. Really cool spot. Eventually, both tag teams went outside the ring, where Mankind then nailed Road Dog in the head with a chair, followed by Billy Gunn clobbering Foley in the head with another chair because, well, it's 1998 and no one cares about the consequences of brain trauma. The ref doesn't disqualify anyone, though, so either this is a no-DQ match or Earl Hebner just doesn't give a shit anymore. And speaking of Hebner not giving a shit, the match ended when Billy Gunn was tagged into the ring, and both outlaws finally did successfully hit the double suplex on Kane. Billy then attacked Mankind, and they both brawled to the outside, leaving Kane and Road Dog alone in the ring. Kane then simply picked up Road Dog and nailed him with a tombstone, as JR correctly protested over the fact that Mr. Ass was actually the legal man. Once again, though, Hebner just didn't give a shit because he counted the pinfall anyway and gave the victory to the team of Kane and Mankind. Yet another loss for D-Generation X, and that faction has been jobbing so much lately that they might as well be in the oddities. We then segue into footage from last week, where Hawk from LOD 2000 was seemingly intoxicated during their match against the Godfather and Mark Henry, including Hawk apparently falling asleep in the corner and then slipping off the top rope when he went to execute the Doomsday device. 
When we cut back live, we see Hawk backstage, along with Animal, who, for some reason, is not wearing any of his usual face paint. Hawk is here to apologize for his actions last week, and, in what becomes a hallmark of Vince Russo's booking, he drops his character and refers to himself by his real name. In fact, I'll play it for you right here. I'd like to take this time to address the World Wrestling Federation fans as myself, Michael Higgsfin, because that's who I really am, not as Hawk at this moment, and apologize for my behavior on last Monday Night Raw. I'd like to apologize to Titan Sports, Vince McMahon, everybody in the WWF, all the fans, and especially my partner, and I hope that you'll be understanding and uh, maybe find it in your heart to forgive. And uh, now I'm going to go out and do the Hawk thing. Now I'm going to go out and do the Hawk thing. Boy, is that ever a sad way to announce, I'm going back into character now. Yikes. And when we come back from commercial, it is indeed time for a Hawk match, and he's apparently going to go solo for this one because Animal doesn't bother coming out to the ring with him. I guess maybe he's still too ashamed. Anyway, Hawk is taking on Jeff Jarrett, who is still accompanied by greatest character ever, Tennessee Lee, despite the fact that Lee accidentally cost Jarrett his match on Sunday Night Heat one night prior. And speaking of which, we would get a similar finish in this match. With Jarrett on the offensive, he motioned for Tennessee Lee to take off his belt, presumably so Double J could hit Hawk with the belt buckle. Instead, however, Tennessee Lee was unable to remove his own goddamn belt for some reason, which distracted Jarrett enough for Hawk to sneak up on him, hit him with a neckbreaker, and score the three count. After the match, Animal, who is still not wearing face paint and is ugly as hell, comes to the ring to congratulate Hawk. However, moments after he arrives, Southern Justice follow him to ringside and start beating the crap out of LOD. But then, LOD's on-again, off-again buddy Draws comes to the ring to even the odds, causing Jarrett, Southern Justice, and Tennessee Lee to retreat. It appears that we're headed for a six-man tag team match next week on Raw, but what actually stuck out to me the most during this segment was the fact that I was reminded of how Hawk and Draws fought each other to a draw in the Brawl for All, and then it was never mentioned again. I guess we can assume they were both eliminated, and clearly, I'm the only one who cares. Next up, I have to quickly hearken back to episode number 28 of this podcast, which I did with Adam from the Rundown Wrestling Podcast. During that show, we discussed the fact that Triple H did a commercial for Stridex, but I couldn't find a clip of it anywhere. Well, the wrestling gods have smiled upon us because, during this episode of Raw on the WWE Network, they actually leave in the Triple H Stridex commercial. I had previously promised Adam that I would play it on this podcast if I could find it, so I hope you enjoy it. Triple H Hunter Hearst Helmsley knows how to take care of business. Stridex Triple Action Pads know how to take care of your skin. And now there's two great offers from Stridex. Save 70 cents on specially marked boxes of maximum strength, regular, and sensitive skin pads. Plus, get this free Triple H poster with the purchase of any Stridex pad product. Just mail your name and address, a Stridex box top, and receipt to the address shown. Supplies are limited, so act now. Triple clean your skin with Stridex medicated pads. So you can deal with tougher things. There you have it, folks, the current executive vice president of talent, live events, and creative for the entire WWE once did a commercial for pimple pads. Clearly, that is the biggest highlight of his stellar career. And fittingly, when we return to the arena, we segue from Triple H to Vince McMahon. He walks to the ring accompanied by Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and Commissioner Slaughter. 
Vince grabs a mic and says that Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker are on a highway to hell, which will end at SummerSlam, but tonight there will be a roadblock on that highway. And yes, presumably he said to himself, yeah, maybe I'll revisit that roadblock thing 18 years from now. Vince says that Austin and Taker will lose their tag team titles to The Rock and Owen Hart tonight, and then he goes on to continue laying out the case for his conspiracy theory that The Undertaker and Kane are secretly in cahoots. In fact, he then calls out The Undertaker because he says that he owes the fans an explanation. Sure enough, Taker does indeed come to the ring, but in a very jarring moment, he's still using that new remix theme, and he doesn't have his usual gong at the beginning of it. So for you Undertaker completists out there, this is probably one of the few gongless entrances he's ever had while using the Dead Man gimmick, so I suppose it's worth checking out for that reason. However, no sooner does Taker enter the ring than Stone Cold Steve Austin's music hits and the WWF champion also makes an appearance. Austin snatches Vince's microphone out of his hand and says he doesn't care about conspiracy theories because his motto is, don't trust anybody. The only thing he's focused on is getting to SummerSlam, beating Taker, and retaining his belt. Unfortunately, Austin then totally buries the tag team titles by saying that The Undertaker can continue to hold on to both of them because he only cares about the WWF title. Hooray for tag teams! He then tosses the microphone back to Vince and starts walking up the ramp. Before he can get backstage, however, The Undertaker says that he needs to listen up. Taker claims that Vince McMahon is trying to drive a wedge between the two of them because he doesn't want either of them to be champions. Taker then calls out Austin to come back to the ring, look him in the eye, and take one of the tag team titles from him. Sure enough, Stone Cold does just that, and then he starts walking right back up the ramp again. Once more, however, before he can get backstage, Taker has something to say. Austin will be safe as long as they're tag team champions together, but once SummerSlam rolls around, he's going to take the WWF title from him. We then quickly segue backstage, where The Rock and Owen Hart cut a brief uneventful promo stating that they're going to win the tag titles later tonight. I have to say, it's pretty crazy that this segment featured Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Undertaker, The Rock, Owen Hart, and Vince McMahon, and yet it was still incredibly skippable. You won't see that very often. We then transition into our next match, the DX powers explode as X-Pac goes one-on-one with Stridex spokesperson Triple H in a match to determine who will face The Rock at SummerSlam for the Intercontinental title. And speaking of which, if you recall last week on Raw, The Rock defended the IC title in a triple threat match against Hunter and X-Pac, but the two DX members ended up fighting amongst each other, which allowed The Rock to retain his title. And then last night on Sunday Night Heat, we were informed that Vince McMahon booked Triple H versus X-Pac on Raw in an attempt to mess with them, but they were both convinced that they would be able to have a nice clean match and shake hands after it's all said and done. I guess we shall see how that goes. Early on, it looked quite promising for DX, as Hunter and X-Pac actually came to the ring together with China accompanying them. I can't think of another instance of two opponents entering at the same time to the same music, but please feel free to let me know if you can find any. And yes, I'm looking at you, New Blood Rising podcast researcher Colin Duff. In another sign of unity, both guys are wearing the same colors on their tights, and those colors are, of course, the ones we usually associate with DX. Black and... red? Sure, why not? Anyway, true to their word, Hunter and X-Pac did indeed go on to have a very nice, competitive match. But then, there was the finish. X-Pac hit Triple H with his three kicks in the corner, causing Hunter to fall to the ground in perfect position for the Bronco Buster. X-Pac went to the opposite corner to get a running start, 
but China grabbed his foot and tripped him. Pac then stuck his head outside of the ring ropes to yell at China, and she proceeded to hit him in the face with a forearm, which was basically right in front of the referee, but he had to pretend that he didn't see it. Hunter then hit Pac with the pedigree, and that was enough to score the three count, making Triple H your new number one contender for the Rock's Intercontinental title at SummerSlam. After the match, Hunter actually looked pretty upset, as though China had gone rogue and her interference wasn't part of the plan. X-Pac then got in his face and shoved him, so it appears that we will not get the post-match handshake that they promised. Yet again, DX's struggles continue, and it certainly seems like the group is heading toward a split. Will it happen next week? We shall find out. Our next match is Val Venus and WWF light heavyweight champion Taka Michinoku versus Kaiantai members Funaki and Togo, accompanied by Teo, Yamaguchi-san, and a very reluctant Mrs. Yamaguchi-san. If you recall last week, Yamaguchi-san challenged Val and Taka to this match, and then he threatened Val with a special surprise afterward. What was it he said again? Oh yes, I remember. Allow me to play that clip for you, since I will use any excuse to play it. And so that brings us to tonight. Val began the match in the ring with Togo, and he had to fend off several double teams by Kai and Tai. At one point, Val ducked under a double clothesline attempt, and then he clotheslined Funaki and Togo to the canvas. At that point, he went over to his corner to make the tag to Taka, and, well, let's find out what happened from there. It seems as if they have isolated Val Venus, who just took them right out of their uh, sandals, and Taka Michinoku ready, willing, and... What? What? What the hell is that? Taka Michinoku, DDT, on his tag partner. And Mrs. Yamaguchi's in shock, as are we. And now Yamaguchi-san has turned the dogs loose on Val Venus. What is up? What in the heck is going on here? Why did Taka do this? Well, there you have it. Taka Michinoku has turned heel and joined Kai and Tai because Val Venus disgraced Mrs. Yamaguchi-san, who we now know is Taka's sister. Frankly, I'm surprised that information didn't somehow come up sooner, but oh well. Also, given the fact that we were previously told that her first name is Kyoko, I guess that means her name before marrying Yamaguchi-san would have been Kyoko Michinoku. Kind of catchy. Anyway, Taka and the other Kayantai members then proceed to drag Val Venus backstage, where, presumably, Yamaguchi-san is going to honor his promise of forcibly removing the big Valboski. We then follow them backstage, where we see Kayantai dragging Val off to some room, as Jim Ross tells us that Mrs. Yamaguchi-san is, quote, very concerned, but she literally has a blank expression on her face and appears to be scratching her arm. 
way to sell it, Kyoko Michinoko. But it appears that Val Venus is about to have his penis chopped off, and if that doesn't count as a cliffhanger, I don't know what does. Stay tuned, folks. Up next, we segue back to the arena for a European title match, champion D'Lo Brown versus challenger Dan the Beast Severn. If you recall two months ago on Raw, these same two men fought each other in a King of the Ring qualifying match, which Severn won by putting D'Lo into a stretch submission, which, of course, is the reason why D'Lo is now wearing that loaded chest protector. Clearly, this is quite the rivalry. Only a few seconds into the match, Mark Henry walks to ringside to provide some backup for D'Lo, which makes me wonder why he didn't just accompany him to the ring in the first place. As a result of this, Steve Blackman then emerges from backstage so he can even the odds. However, shortly thereafter, an angry Ken Shamrock then also comes to ringside and starts going completely nuts, throwing D'Lo and Mark Henry into the steel steps and then hitting D'Lo with mounted punches. Much like the finish from Sunday Night Heat one night prior, D'Lo once again retains his European title as a result of a disqualification. Shamrock then heads back up the ramp while yelling, This is my house! And yet again, it appears we are teasing more friction between Shamrock and Severn, which will sadly never end up getting resolved. D'Lo Brown then also begins walking backstage, but he stops to pose with his European title. This turns out to be a mistake, because he then gets jumped by Edge, of all people. Yes, Edge literally hits D'Lo with a quick clothesline from behind, and then he jumps off the stage and walks away. At this point, I think Edge has the best gig in the entire company. Show up, be seen for 10 seconds, leave, collect paycheck. It's a good system. We then cut backstage once more, where Kayentai and Yamaguchi-san are beating the crap out of Val Venus, as Mrs. Yamaguchi-san is still looking on, completely bored. I can't be 100% certain, but the look on her face right now appears to say, I can't believe this is my life. Probably not too much of a surprise that she's gone from the company only a few weeks from now. When we return from commercial, well, well, what do we have here? It's Tiger Ali Singh, accompanied by his manservant, Babu. You may think this is actually the first time we're seeing Tiger Ali Singh during the run of this podcast, but that is actually not the case. If you go all the way back to the February 2nd episode of Raw, which was covered in episode number 7 of this fine podcast, the WWF actually did do a pre-taped vignette which introduced us to Tiger Ali Singh, and then he hasn't been mentioned since. But fast forward six months later, and here we are. Tiger's gimmick is that of an Indian aristocrat who seeks to humiliate Americans by proving that they will do anything for money. To back up that point, we were then shown footage of what happened before Sunday Night Heat went on the air last night as Tiger paid an American woman in the crowd $500 to get on her hands and knees and eat dog food. And before you ask, yes, I'm 100% certain that the Americans in these segments are planted fans. So what does Tiger have in store for us tonight? He tells us that an American woman from the crowd can come into the ring and he will give her $500 for every article of clothing she removes. Sounds an awful lot like a night at one of the Godfather's strip clubs, actually. Tiger tasks Babu with picking out the lucky lady from the crowd, and, of course, he chooses an overweight woman because making fun of fat people is funny. Interestingly, when Tiger begins speaking to the woman, it appears that he inspires one of The Rock's future catchphrases. No, wait a minute. He's not going to have her. This is the best representative of what your average American woman looks like. What's your name? That's irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. So there you have it, folks. 
The Rock plagiarized one of his most popular catchphrases from Tiger Ali's Sing. I wouldn't have guessed that either. Anyway, back to the segment. So the obese woman removes her shirt, followed by her skirt, but then, when she's about to take off her bra, Tiger tells her to stop because he's changing the rules. He will now give her $500 for every article of clothing that she puts back on. She then proceeds to get dressed as Jim Ross says, quote, Large ladies with tattoos need to stay clothed, only my opinion. So apparently JR is siding with the heel on this one. Good to know. Fun fact before wrapping up this segment, Tiger Ali Singh will eventually go on to sue the WWF for $7 million in 2002 because he claims that several wrestlers filled his turban with cigarettes and garbage and would frequently refer to him as Taxi Driver. I couldn't find anything online where Tiger specifically names which wrestlers did that, but let's just assume that one of them was JBL. I think, I think that's a pretty safe bet. We then cut backstage once more, where Kai and Tai have dragged Val Venus into a room, and Yamaguchi-san is now brandishing the same sword he was holding last week. They tell the cameraman to leave, so he exits, and Yamaguchi-san slams the door behind him. At this point, I feel like this pee-pee chopping is going to end up getting more build-up than most of the matches on the SummerSlam card. And now it's time for your main event, WWF Tag Team Champions Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker defending their titles against Nation of Domination co-leaders Owen Hart and The Rock, who was obviously listening quite closely to Tiger Ali Singh's promo backstage. First of all, let me just say that I popped a bit when Austin and Owen were in the ring together, since it was just about one year prior at SummerSlam 1997 when Owen accidentally broke Stone Cold's neck with a botched tombstone. Austin has clearly advanced pretty far up the card since then, Owen, eh, not so much. Amusingly, at one point, Stone Cold actually put Owen into the sharpshooter, but thankfully the referee was Tim White and not Earl Hebner, so he didn't tell anyone to ring the fucking bell. Also, early on in the match, Jim Ross tells us out of nowhere that Owen will meet Ken Shamrock in a Lion's Den match at SummerSlam, so yes, they officially kill any hopes of a Shamrock-Severn match in a quick one-off statement by JR in the middle of a Raw main event. There has been literally zero build-up for an Owen-Shamrock rematch over the past few weeks. Clearly, all of the focus has been building to Shamrock-Severn, but for some reason, we're going with Shamrock versus Owen because that makes a lot of sense. Oi. Getting back to the match, the ending was actually pretty abrupt as The Rock made the tag to Owen, and then Austin simultaneously made the hot tag to The Undertaker, and then Taker pretty much just hit Owen with a tombstone and pinned him. When he did that, I was actually thinking how ironic it would be if Taker had broken Owen's neck with a tombstone, but thankfully that didn't happen. However, as soon as The Undertaker scored the pinfall, Mankind ran into the ring behind him and put the mandible claw on Taker. Kane then came to the ring behind him, and he was holding a chair. Kane lifted the chair, seemingly to strike The Undertaker, but Taker ducked at the last second, and Kane leveled Mankind in the head with it instead. And of course, because it's Mick Foley, it was an incredibly brutal chair shot. Taker then grabbed the chair from Kane and stared him down, but in the meantime, Mankind got back up to his feet, so Taker leveled him with yet another sick chair shot to the skull, because one just isn't enough for Foley. Taker then turned his attention to Owen Hart, while the New Age Outlaws entered the ring and started beating on Kane. Strangely, Stone Cold Steve Austin then re-emerged and hit Road Dog with a stunner for some reason. This turned into quite the schmoz, but the main takeaway appears to be the fact that The Undertaker and Kane could be in cahoots after all. 
Before we have any time to process that, though, we quickly cut backstage one more time, where security pushes open a door, and we see Val Venus hanging from his wrists, completely naked, with his ass pixelated. Amidst all the commotion of security guards yelling at him, Yamaguchi-san lifts his sword above his head, but the camera fades to black before we can see what happens. However, we do hear some audio before we go off the air. Was that the sound of a man's genitalia being removed from his body? You'll just have to tune in next week to find out. Also, as a quick side note, in my research for the past few episodes, I found out an interesting fact. If you Google I choppy choppy your pee pee, for some reason there are plenty of images of Val Venus's uncensored doughy ass from this segment all over the internet. I'm not sure how there are so many pictures of Val's ass out there considering they censored it on the initial broadcast, but there you go, ladies. Enjoy. Also, as a quick side note, this is probably the last time that Kai and Tai will ever be the final image we see on an episode of Monday Night Raw before we go off the air, so I hope you enjoy that too. Quite a bit of history. But now, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed MCs back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been dug in. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they clucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap Last week, Nitro managed to narrow the gap and put up a respectable fight against Raw, with the WWF coming out on top with a rating of 4.84 to Nitro's 4.72. This week, even though it was pre-taped, Raw scored almost the exact same rating, a 4.85, but Nitro dropped down to a 4.2. That makes four straight ratings victories for Raw, even though Nitro was airing its go-home episode before Road Wild 1998, which will, of course, be headlined by Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff taking on Diamond Dallas Page and Jay Leno. Yeesh. So here's what you could have been watching on that go-home episode of Nitro. Diamond Dallas Page defeated the Barbarian. Psychosis vs. Tokyo Magnum ended in a no contest. Scott Norton defeated Hugh Morris in five seconds, and yes, you heard that correctly. Brian Adams defeated Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Eddie Guerrero defeated Juventude Guerrera, no relation. Lismark Jr. defeated Stevie Ray via countout. Kurt Hennig defeated Conan. Rey Mysterio defeated Chris Jericho, definitely go watch that one. And in your main event, the Giant and Scott Hall versus Sting and Bret Hart ended in a no contest, so Giant and Hall retained their WCW Tag Team titles. Also, Sting reverted back to his old black and white face paint for this match, but don't worry, he switches right back to the red paint next week anyway. Also, unfortunately, for the third week in a row, Eric Bischoff hosted a parody of Jay Leno's Tonight Show called NWO Nightcap. These segments have bombed every single time, and yet they still continue to subject the fans to them. This week's Nightcap lasted a completely necessary 13 minutes and contained wonderful jokes like these. And finally, trust me, Leno. When I see you in Sturgis, I'm going to teach you the meaning of punchline. Get it? <laughs> Give it up. Is this one or what? 
Hard to imagine why WCW is losing in the ratings every week at this point, huh? Thankfully, the pay-per-view is this weekend, so that should be the end of NWO Nightcap if there is a just and loving God. Once again, a very mediocre episode of Nitro, except for Mysterio Jericho. You should definitely go check that one out. And now, let's go to the Raw Synopsis. For the first time in a while, I have to say that I would recommend skipping this episode of Raw. The main event was quite good, and Hunter X-Pac was solid, but everything else was very uninspiring, unless you enjoy the threat of someone getting their PP chopped off. In fact, I actually had a hard time coming up with a title for this episode of the podcast, because there was so little that actually happened on this show. You know what this episode could have used? More Steven Regal. Where the fuck is he? Regal debuted on Raw five weeks ago, and hasn't been seen since. Get the man on the show already. Sorry, sorry, I just realized I hadn't seen him in a while. Also, the answer to why we haven't seen him is probably drugs. But anyway, the WWF may be on the highway to hell, but this episode of Raw was more like a cul-de-sac. Hopefully things will pick up next week, though, when Raw goes back to being live. Will we finally find out if The Undertaker and Kane are in cahoots? Is Degeneration X headed for a split? And did Val Venus get his Johnson cut off? Tune in next week to find out. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will leave you now with a clip of another commercial Triple H did. This one is from 2015 and also features Stephanie McMahon, so enjoy that and I will catch you next time. Snapple Real Fact 1007. OMG was first used in 1917. O-M-G. <laughs> Stephanie McMahon and Triple H. You're my heroes. Guess we're not the only ones that love Snapple. Why do New Yorkers love this stuff more than anybody? The simple ingredients? I bet my dad knows. He says he's the authority, not you. <laughs> I think Mommy said that, actually. Right? Tell him Mommy says that. All natural Snapple. New Yorkers love it. You're going to love it, too.